Amen. Hallelujah. Please have a seat. My name is not Gregory Brewer. Bishop Gregory Brewer is normally here on an Easter Sunday, but this year, Greg and Laura Lee are celebrating Easter in England. Greg is on the third week of a well-deserved and much-needed sabbatical. He will be on sabbatical until July. Meanwhile, I'm Reggie Kidd, the dean of the cathedral, and um, with your permission, I will do the best that I can to find some good news in today's passages. If you're a guest especially, we're so very glad that you are here to be with us as we worship our risen Lord and Savior. In fact, if the Christian story is about anything, it is about resurrection, an empty tomb and a rising from the dead. One of the most celebrated 20th century scholars of the history of Christian doctrine was Yale professor Yaroslav Pelikan. Late in life, Professor Pelikan summed up the conclusion of his studies and his life's journey with these words. If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. If Christ is not, nothing else matters. I don't know about your upbringing, but even though we went to church, my family had fully embraced what seemed to be a hardcore truth. Dead people don't come back to life. But just this year, and interestingly, just before Easter, scientists have seen what Albert Einstein had said we need to imagine. What we thought were iron laws of nature are a lot more elastic. We have now seen a black hole's power to bend light. Maybe reality is more pliable than we thought. And Easter cries out, oh yes it is. One has risen and he rises but as first of many to follow. In John's account of the resurrection of Jesus, our gospel reading for today, Peter and the beloved disciple, probably John, almost serve as foils. Did you notice their nearly comical race to the tomb? Peter's impetuous entry, seeing but not really seeing. John's reserved entry, but seeing and believing. And, and yet, even so, then they just, really, they just go home. John's account focuses on Mary Magdalene. It's her eyes we are asked to look through. It is, she is the one that we are expected to, to identify with. And I know that she is me. And I know that's not good English, but. <laughs> Mary Magdalene, three things about her I'd like us to consider. 
One, she had lived in the dark until Jesus brought her into the light. Two, she had lived as an outcast until Jesus gave her a family. And three, she thought that she had lost her very reason to live until Jesus sent her on a mission of love. First, she had lived in the dark until Jesus brought her into the light. Now, Mary Magdalene is often identified with the actually unnamed sinful woman of Luke chapter 7 who anoints Jesus' feet. And so tradition thinks of Mary Magdalene as a prostitute, a working woman. Fact is, we don't know that. All the New Testament tells us about her life before she comes to know Jesus is what Luke says about her at the beginning of the next chapter, chapter 8 of Luke's gospel. And the news there is bad enough. She had been possessed by seven demons, and Jesus had delivered her. Now, honestly, my own direct encounter with the occult has been modest and limited. Enough to know that it's a place of darkness. But indirect possessions I know a lot about. My own and others. You can be possessed by greed, by anger, envy, avarice, lust. Even sloth can be a possession. I'm not getting out of bed today. Dark places where all you can see is what you need to get, whom you need to hurt or avoid. Jesus Christ had stepped into Mary Magdalene's life and released her from whatever the torment was. He had opened her eyes to see him and reflected in his eyes the beauty that God had made her for. And Jesus had enabled her to imagine an experience beyond her little cocoon of pain. Second, she lived as an outcast until Jesus gave her a family. I assure you that in Jewish life, there is no place for a demon-possessed person. And in Jewish life, in the, in the history of Israel's relationship with God, to relate to God, you need to be a part of his people. And to be cast out of his people, to be cast away, was to be cast out of his presence. It's a very lonely place. Utterly alone. Until she becomes a part of the troop of women who travel with Jesus and actually underwrite his ministry. Listen to Luke's description in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Soon afterwards, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward Shuza, and Susanna, 
and many others who provided for them out of their resources. And in fact, at the cross, it is only the three Marys, Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, and one other Mary besides the beloved disciple, John, who are there. This is the only family that she has. And three, she thought that she had lost her reason to live until Jesus sent her on a mission of love. Notice our passage starts with her coming while it's still dark. Here she is in the dark again, fearful that with the loss of her friend Jesus, the larger darkness will descend once again. The abuser that had made her life a living hell would have his way with her once again. Now here she is, alone once again, and yet if no one else will love Jesus in his death, she will. Remarkably, tears allow her to see what Peter and John had been blind to. Now, Peter had simply observed Jesus' headcloth and body wrappings just lying there. John had also seen the headcloth and the body and the body wrappings, but he had gone on to perceive the meaning of the empty tomb. Jesus must be alive. But then, Peter and John, the both of them, they just take off, leaving Mary Magdalene alone once again, still in the dark. Somehow, as she looks into the tomb for herself, weeping through her tears, and maybe precisely because of her loving tears, she sees what Peter and John had not seen, and she hears what Peter and John had not heard, a presence from the other side, the angel who asks, why are you weeping? which leads to the remarkable conversation with the man that she mistakes for the gardener who asks her two questions. Woman, why are you weeping? And for whom are you looking? Then finally he says her name. Mary. When he calls her name, she knows. Rabboni, my teacher. John doesn't translate it quite all the way. It's my teacher. It's you, really you. My abuser is not coming back. I'm not alone again after all. And so she responds in the most natural way you could imagine. She reaches out to embrace him. Who wouldn't? I would want to cling to him and to hold on to him as long as possible. 
so, so, so very grateful. But his response is so intriguing, isn't it? No, Mary, that's for another time and another place. For now, I need you to be my voice to tell my brothers that I am alive. The, the overall perspective of the New Testament, and Michael Matheny so nicely brought this out in his homily on Good Friday, the only form that Jesus' body takes on the earth now is twofold. The bread and the wine and his church, you all, us, together. Jesus is himself, he says, the head. But we, he says, are his hands and his feet, his body. And Jesus would have Mary Magdalene in this moment be his voice. Go tell my brothers. She, in fact, is the very first person that he sends on mission. And that is why some rightly call her the first apostle, a word which simply means sent one. She becomes apostle to the apostles. I hazard a guess that you are here today because you sense that whatever is dead or wounded or blinded in you is not the final word. And you are right. If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, well, doesn't your heart just tell you that he must be and that he is? If you have never had the opportunity to have Jesus do business with you, maybe today could be that day. Maybe here at the altar, encountering him really for the first time by faith in the bread and the wine. Maybe you need somebody to pray alongside you so that you can have a sense that it could be real. If you need that, just let one of us know. We'd be happy to talk with you and pray with you. If you want to, you know, give us a, uh, a note on the connection card, we'll be happy to get together. But beyond you needing Jesus to do business with you, think about the world that you and I live in with so many people in the darkness, so many people with no legacy, no family, or a bad legacy, and a bad family. So many people who do not know love, do not know how to love. I hazard a guess that there is somebody that you know who is bumping around in the dark, lost, and cast out, living recklessly, wrongly and foolishly because they do not know the risen Christ. The burning of the roof at Notre Dame Cathedral leaves 
former presidential speech writer and now columnist Peggy Noonan, wondering if there might be some hardened atheist out there who will consider those flames and wake up to the faith that originally built that place. Maybe you are sent to tell that person the good news. The master of that house lives. The burning of three African-American Baptist churches in Louisiana leaves me wondering if some hardened racist is going to say this Easter, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves and lives for and in the little children of the world. Maybe you are sent as Jesus' voice to tell that person, yes, and Jesus loves you too. The bombing of three churches in Sri Lanka this very Easter day leaves me wondering if some militant somewhere will unstrap the suicide vest and say, this can't be the way. I choose Jesus. I choose the way, the truth, and the life. Maybe you are sent the beautiful feet of the bearer of good news, sent to tell that person the God-man Jesus has stooped to conquer my heart and maybe your heart as well. Alleluia. Christ is risen. Alleluia. Christ is risen. Alleluia.